Well, uh, 30 years ago, I went to college and I made the silly mistake of joining the young Republicans and the young Democrats uh, at the same time. You're listening to John Opdyke. He's the president of Open Primaries and one of four politically engaged American independents you'll meet on this Purple Principle. And I didn't know that wasn't allowed. I came from a very non-political family. I was very naive. Uh, I went away to college with somewhat of a chip on my shoulder to get more worldly and, and knowledgeable of how the world worked. And I thought getting involved in politics was a good way to do that. But I very quickly learned that that's not what party politics was. Party politics was you know, picking a team, bashing the other side. So I became an independent. This is Robert Pease, creator of The Purple Principle and a lifelong political independent. From an independent perspective, John's college attempt to join both parties seems perfectly reasonable. We are governed by both parties. Major donors give money to both Republican and Democratic politicians to advance their interests. Why can't citizens join both parties? The reality is that stories like this from one of America's 40 million independent citizens are largely missing from the national conversation. That's because of the dominance of the two major parties and the media's focus on their partisan battles. Independents are like the agnostics in the National Church of Us vs. Them, Blue vs. Red or Red vs. Blue, squirming uneasily during self-promoting sermons. They're the more casual viewers of the Super Bowl or Game 7 or the World Series who wouldn't really mind things ending in a tie so no one went home disappointed or angry. In the media realm, independents have no cable channel. And when was the last time you saw an independent commentator on a major network? Democratic. On the right. Democratic debate. Conservative. Democratic. Republican senator. Democrat from New York. Lead over the Democratic field. Republican presidential candidate. Independents are largely missing from high school and college textbooks and classroom discussions. And in many states, independents are excluded from the primary voting booths. Today, you'll meet four of those 40 million overlooked American independents. Each of them are working in different ways to transcend polarization in U.S. politics and society. John Opdyke, a member of both parties for those few formative minutes in college, is now working to fully franchise independent voters as president of open primaries. We asked him to explain the mission at this New York-based nonprofit. We think that the primary should belong to the voters and not to the parties. That's their origin. Now they're seen as the process of a party, which is a private organization, choosing its nominee. That's how most people think of primaries. That's how the law defines primaries. What we're saying is actually these are taxpayer-funded elections. Every person, whether they're in a party or not, should be able to vote in them. And what effect do you think that would have on elected officials and on uh, governance? Politicians who get elected in open public primary systems are much better elected officials. They actually are incentivized to work with members of the other party. Candidates that get elected in these closed partisan primaries, they have absolutely no incentive to govern, to represent their constituents. Their job is to represent the 5 to 10% of partisan warriors that get them elected every two years in the primary. That's all they care about. It's not because they're evil people or stupid people. It's that's how the election system is set up. Okay, so as you know... Steady growth in the number of independents in the U.S. over the past few decades. What do you think is driving that? I think independents are saying loud and clear, 
They do not like party politics. They might vote for a Democrat and Repub or Republican. I mean, in 99% of the elections, those are pretty much your only choices. But just because you vote for a Democrat or a Republican doesn't make you a party person. And independents have real criticisms of party politics and how it operates, not just the candidates, but the culture of it, the way in which it turns every issue into a political football. But independence also comes at a cost. Can you describe for us the disadvantages you see to being an independent? Well, the disadvantages are you're a second-class citizen. I mean, in many states, you're not allowed to vote in the primaries, and the primaries are oftentimes the only elections that, are, that matter because of gerrymandering and a whole a host of other factors. Independents get ignored. When they do get related to, they get related to as Republican leaners or Democratic leaners. And if there's an independent candidate that you might be interested in, they're typically marginalized. So being an independent comes with a whole host of barriers uh, that in many states and in many elections keep independents on the sidelines. And how about advantages? The advantages are you have some hope and vision for this country beyond the next election. The closed primary system that Opdyke and open primaries are working to reform also means remarkably few independents attain elected office. We asked reporters Emily Crusetti and Michael Valeri to research how many independent legislators are currently in office at both the national and state levels. Let's start in the Senate. Currently, there are two senators that are listed as independents, Bernie Sanders and Angus King. But both caucus with the Democrats. And I know Sanders votes with the Democrats about 83% of the time, and King 90.6% of the time, according to ProPublica. And there's just one independent in the House, uh, Justin Amash of Michigan, who left the Republican Party last year. And I think he seemed to be like a candidate for president for about a week. And currently, no independent governors. The last was Bill Walker of Alaska in 2018. How about at the state level? I know we did that spreadsheet a few weeks ago. Yeah, let me look that up. And it is amazing. When you add up all the two legislators of each of the 50 states, you get over 7,000 state-level representatives nationwide. And how many independent legislators, as in not belonging to a party, either major or minor? Maybe 22, more or less. It's tricky because some caucus with one party or another. But you can safely say about two dozen. So two dozen out of nearly 7,400. Yet 35% of Americans are registered independent or unaffiliated. Says a lot about two-party power. And partisan politics. Our next guest is one of those remarkably few independent legislators who's beaten the two-party odds multiple times. Laura Sibelia is a three-term member of the Vermont General Assembly. She first decided to avoid major party backing and seek office as an independent back in 2015. I had three who now I would classify them as moderate Republicans. I don't even know if there's room for them today as Republicans. Three Republicans approached me about running. And I remember very distinctly saying to them, um, well, I'm not a Republican. And they, you know, like I believe in, you know, gay marriage and, you know, a whole host of civil rights and, and you know, a woman's right to choose. and. I said, well, we believe in those things too. <laughs> okay. I said, I'm not running as a Democrat because I feel like the party just takes it too far. Can you give us some examples? 
Well, in particular, um, in particular, you know, we have a lot of um, labor policies, you know, the minimum wage policies, paid family leave, and those, you know, are perennial issues here. They're not necessarily issues I'm opposed to. Um, but they don't, you know, we shortcut a lot of times the policy development of those um, in our tiny little state. And we, you know, aren't able to address the situation on the ground here. And, um, you know, in rural Vermont, you know, things are not quite the same as they are in New York City or Burlington. Um, Vermont is so small and our districts are so small. I represent less than 5,000 people. We can have 20,000 people because we have a mountain, ski mountain there. But I do have, I do also represent a town or an unorganized town with a population of three. So how would you describe your own independent platform then? I don't have a platform. In fact, it, I, like I basically refuse to have a platform. Like um, there are issues that I'm going to put forward from my constituents. There are issues, you know, when other people put forward issues and that we have to vote on them, my platform is... I'm going to look at that and understand it and, you know, ask all kinds of questions and, you know, then vote the way that I think is best. So that's an that's a disadvantage in some ways and an advantage to being an independent. So you don't get the, you know, get fed from the party. All right. So to review, you didn't feel comfortable running as a Republican or a Democrat and you don't have a platform. Is it possible you're just not comfortable with political parties? You know, I'd like to say that I really understand the notion of organizing people, organizing ideas, organizing for funding, for moving ideas forward. So I get the idea of parties and I get the value of parties, but it's it's that's not me. And I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties um, to kind of be the, I don't, I don't even know what we would call it, but um, the the space in between. So we're seen as kind of um, unaffiliated brokers in the middle. But it seems polarization is growing between the two major parties at the federal level and in many states. Do you feel that growing in Vermont as well? I feel like it's growing and I feel like it's, you know, moving down, moving down. I've seen the governor called a rhino. You know, other, I've seen other lawmakers called, you know, dinos for, you know, I don't even know if that's how you say it, but I presume it is, uh, for collaborating. But I see, I think my constituents are reacting at the federal level, and um, that is, that it, come, it ends up coming down. And how has that played out in the Vermont Assembly? There's been some real... Um, there's been some real loss in the Republican Party for moderate voices. Um, in the last election, you know, we had um, four folks, one independent and three moderate Republicans um, that I worked with often. Um, they all lost their seats. I went door to door with um, one of them and literally heard people say, you know, usually I'm with you, but, you know, we can't deal with what's going on with this, you know, presidential administration, we have to stop it. But if partisanship is creeping down to the state level, are you still able to play that role you mentioned, that role of unaffiliated broker in the middle? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Vermont is actually incredibly fortunate right now. 
Um, we have a really moderate um, Republican governor and we have a moderate Democratic um, speaker and both have, you know, are have a high level of integrity. You know, the speaker um, is a real stickler for making sure that everyone is able to engage fairly in the process and all of the voices are able to be heard. Um, and I would say the governor, you know, the governor does the same. So it's, I, I'm, I feel really fortunate to be serving at this point. Political identities often form around voting age, such as in late high school, early college, when our guest John Updike tried to join both major parties. Let's say a young American not entirely happy with the two major political identities searches online for important or famous Americans who are independent. What do they find? We asked reporters Emily Cressetti and Michael Valeri to investigate. Okay, well, we're talking about a young person here, late high school, early college. They're probably going to look for celebrities. Or in this economy, maybe CEOs. So what did you get for independent celebrities? I googled a list of American celebrities who are political independents. The second result referring to the American Independent Party, not to unaffiliated independents. So I'm not sure Dr. Google understands the question. And wow, or maybe sad, your third hit looks like 22 celebrity Democrats. Yep, from Oprah Magazine. What about CEOs? The first hit is a Harvard Law School Journal article on the politics of CEOs. Any independents? Not really. There's a huge table listing contributions, but to either Democratic or Republican campaigns only. What about the second hit? That is a 2016 Harvard Business Review article with political affiliations on U.S. boards, but no names or bios. So no role models. What about Wikipedia? There must be a list. List of famous American independents. Does not exist. But you can ask for it to be created. Okay, but though right under it, there's a list of suicides. Maybe they mean political suicides. Just like Dr. Google, Dr. Wikipedia doesn't really seem to understand the question. And that's not going to help any young people out there learn about U.S. political independence, that's for sure. Famous American independents may not pop up in online searches like Democrats or Republicans, but there are independents in highly important positions throughout the country. Tom Riley, chancellor of the Nevada System of Higher Education, is one example. He currently oversees the education of 100,000 students throughout the state. Well, uh, professionally, I first registered as an independent when I was the county executive or county manager in Clark County, which is the Las Vegas Valley. I was appointed by a seven-person partisan board. I did find that uh, a key to being effective in that position was trust and communication with the elected officials. Uh, I felt being independent allowed me to navigate through some of those political issues and, um, you know, assisted me in gaining the trust of the elected officials. Similar to the position I am in now, in fact, I remember during my interview, this issue came up and Several noted uh, the fact that I was a registered independent and that had been noted in the media was something that they felt very attracted to. And do you feel there are times in your personal and social life where it's an advantage to be an independent, such as when people are arguing uh, along partisan lines? I think in private life, as well as in those type of discussions, the fact that many individuals don't feel you're predetermined in your position or you haven't taking a position that is uh, 
well identified by a political party, there's perhaps some openness to listen to your point of view. Let's turn back to academia and education for a minute. Uh, as you know, lots of student Republican and student Democratic groups on campuses all around the country, but not so many independent groups. Are you aware of any in your system? Very few. Uh, there's been some discussions around the uh, issues that many independents uh, have begun to champion, particularly around structural barriers for participation in the political process. But, you know, it's very interesting. Um, you know, there's this whole idea of an independent, free-thinking citizen that's able to make intelligent, informed decisions, you know, has really been, you know, a place of distinction that we've had throughout American political life. But it it seems to have escaped U.S. academic scholarship. <laughs> you know, for the past 60 or 70 years, it's as if that many academics are unable to kind of conceive of a voter that doesn't choose between one, one of the two major parties. So let's go back a few years to your previous position at Arizona State, uh, where you conducted some research on independence and voting access. Can you tell us about that project? Prior to becoming the chancellor, I was a... Um, head of a, a think tank uh, called the Morrison Institute at Arizona State University. And um, it's a nonpartisan think tank. And we had done a series on the independent voter. And I do remember a, um, a conference we we're having that fell right after uh, the 2016 election. So, you know, partisan tensions were extremely high. And it was interesting in that uh, very partisan atmosphere when we began talking about changes to allow all individuals to participate in the political process. It was this bizarre alignment <laughs> of both parties, uh, you know, attacking any effort to open up their primaries or to allow individuals uh, <laughs> to be able to get on the ballot uh, easy. Uh, it was uh, very surreal, if you will. And we saw this Morrison Institute research had some insight into the media diets of independent and partisan voters. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. You know, the Pew uh, research has done some, uh, you know, very respectable and uh, research on voting patterns. But particularly on their work, when they looked at uh, media consumption, they, like others, left out independents. So individuals tend to live in this bubble of uh, more conservative-leaning uh, individuals looking at news sources that reinforce their worldview versus liberals. And this has been pretty well documented. But when they had independence as part of their networks that they talked to on an ongoing basis, and this is particularly true of uh, more conservative individuals, it, it tended to moderate their uh, media consumption which means in the case of the very more conservative individuals, they tend to introduce additional media sources uh, in their consumption. And I, I think that's it's pretty powerful, again, that needs to be looked at further and really poses questions whether independence serve as maybe a moderating uh, influence. Our final guest is Jacqueline Salet, president of independentvoting.org, a 25-year-old clearinghouse and advocacy group. Jacqueline worked closely with Tom Riley on that study analyzing independence and media consumption. Like our other guests, she's been a politically engaged independent her entire professional life. So we asked her, 
What position or viewpoint do most American independents have in common? We've done surveys on this. The numbers come in at between 65 and 70 percent say that the reason that they decided to be an independent is because they think the political parties are more interested in their own self-preservation and their own power than they are in doing what's right for the communities or the constituency or the nation. So you're on record saying that excluding independents from taxpayer-funded primary elections is a form of taxation without representation. But why should parties allow someone who is not a member vote in their selection process? Well, that's a great question, and it's a very fair question. Uh, I think what we would say about that is, look, the parties have to make up their mind as to what they are. What kind of thing are they? Are they a private association that allows them certain protections, protections including the protection of the First Amendment to exclude Um And if you're that kind of organization, fine. Then you're a private organization, and you should function as a private organization, and the taxpayers should not foot the bill for your activities. You should not have the privilege of acting as a quasi-governmental institution. Tell us a little bit about the invisibility of independence and the difficulty that creates for, for mobilizing them. Well, this is very, very important, and I'm so glad you bring this up. I mean, there's a, uh, there, there is this, uh, this fallacy within academia and within political, you know, professional political circles that says that in spite of the fact that 45% of the country identify themselves as independents, really, there's only like 7% true independents in in America. So they shrink us down by virtue of the following uh, methodology, which is that in these, they do these surveys. So they ask you, you know, how do you identify Democrat, Republican, independent? Okay. So then, okay, Democrat, Republican, good, we got it. Uh, independent, oh, wait a second, we have a follow up question. Uh, how did you vote in the last election? Did you vote, oh, I voted for a Democrat or oh, I voted for a Republican? Oh, okay. Hmm. That means you're not really an independent, it means you're a leaner. Now, let's leave aside the fact that in most elections, the only choices you have are a Democrat or a Republican. But the problem is even deeper than that, because why should how you voted in a given cycle or even in multiple cycles be privileged to define you relative to how you want to define yourself? If someone decides to identify as an independent, they are making, in my experience, a statement of non-compliance with the system. That was Jacqueline Salet, president of independentvoting.org, and one of four guests today who find value and virtue in their political independence. In future episodes, we'll be talking with more of the 40 million missing Americans from all walks of life about the advantages and disadvantages of being independent and their views on a polarized nation, government, and society. This has been Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Sarah Holtz, associate producer, Janice Murphy, senior editor, Emily Crisetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, and Emily Holloway, fact-checking and research. Our original music is by Ryan Adair Rooney. Please stay tuned for future episodes. Like us on social media, but not, you know, in a partisan way and share your purple tale through our contact form at purpleprinciple.com. 
We may feature you in a future episode, blog, or media post.